Welcome to Podcast from Cumberland Lodge. Today we will be speaking to the Conservative politician and member of the House of Lords, Baroness Nicholson of Winterbourne. Baroness Nicholson has served as an MP and MEP and she's a member of the UK delegation to the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. She has been working in the Middle East for many years with a particular interest in countering cruelty and extremism. Welcome Baroness Nicholson. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your work in foreign policy and human rights? I've always uh, dedicated my political time to foreign policy and human rights. To me the two are twins, they're not separate. A good foreign policy will be built on human rights and good human rights will be built on intelligent and committed foreign policy thinking. You can't really have the one effective without the other. I've been very, very lucky in serving in four completely different parliamentary systems, House of Lords, House of Commons, Brussels and Strasbourg, and that's given me unrivaled opportunity to focus on both these issues, both these twin issues which have grabbed me all my life. And um, I've been working in all sorts of different parts of the globe. I'm trade envoy for the Prime Minister at the moment, for Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan and for Iraq. I chair the Amar Foundation, uh, which is a wonderful charity and uh, has a million patients in Iraq, uh, building up local experts, local professionals in health and education. A government report published in 2016 said that community cohesion felt stronger in some parts of the country than others. In your experiences, do you think that's the case? Certainly, that government report is absolutely correct. And I think that in Britain we've been a little bit too lackadaisical. We've leant back and said everybody can fit in any way they want uh, without considering the common values on which any society has to be based if it's going to stay together. Mm. And we need to work on those common values up and down the country. Of course, that's a difficult thing to do. And that's where I think the church is particularly important. The Church of England is unique in that it has a significant presence through its parish structure in every single area of the country. And that is the national church that reaches out every day to mosques, to synagogues, and also to the huge number of people who don't go anywhere near a religious worship centre, who are what is commonly called these days civil society. So each of our major institutions, whether it's parliament, whether it's the law, whether it's the church, whether it's the media, we must make the effort to pull our people together. Mm. I mean, what do you think causes communities to become more divisive? It's natural for human beings to argue, and I like that. I'm a politician. I want argument every moment of the day so that we can hammer out joint solutions. And I think that's the key, is teaching people at school how to debate. We have to learn again what some of us learned and an awful lot of us didn't learn at school, which is how to debate, how to have a very tough argument and then go off and have a coffee together. That's the key. That's what we do in the Commons and the Lords, mm -hmm. and that's the best way to behave. And we've forgotten how to teach that. Our hard-pressed teachers simply haven't been asked to do this, and I think that's a big, big issue. And in the aftermath of the Brexit vote, um, do you think the referendum has exposed more divisions in our society? Brexit was a unique uh, facet of last year, and it will roll on, taking us into a different direction. I think it's hugely exciting. And no, I don't think that divisions Divisions as such don't worry me at all. 
I sincerely hope people do have different points of view in life. We're all different, and I want those differences to be discussed very openly. So I loved the Brexit debate. I thought somebody was a bit bit extreme, a bit inaccurate on both sides, but that's debate. And as the Prime Minister has said, we are, we are not a divided society, we are a whole society. In fact, we're an island, so we're very much a whole society with a few small islands around us. And I like debate, but what I want is for people to be able to debate in a way that will enable them to remain friends afterwards. Mm. And do you think uh, mistrust and prejudice occurs when there's too little opportunity for people to meet and talk together? I think that uh, prejudice occurs when, and, and a feeling of exclusion, which may be accurate in fact, may very well be accurate, when the body of the church, when the bulk of society is not sensitised, is not um, empathetic with those who are different. That could be difference because of physical or mental disability or difference. It could be because of a different class, a different creed, a different attitude. We all have to not huddle back in our own little caves, rather like the Stone Age where we only talk to each other, but we all have to be out in the marketplace, whether it's the marketplace of ideas, of competition, the marketplace of worship, the marketplace of civil society. We've got to get out and about and do you think dialogue has a role to play in, in combating mistrust and prejudice? Humans have this extraordinary attribute that no other vertebrate, no other living thing on earth that we know has, which is speech. So yes, dialogue, which means speech between two people, utterly essential, utterly essential. And that's why I think uh, learning debating and learning acting at school and all those things are utterly crucial. Dialogue is key. No one else but humans has speech. Therefore, that's mm -hmm. our primary method of communication. Mm -hmm. and, and how do you think we can promote a sense of belonging amongst um, all members of society? So, more institutions, more WIs, more ways of getting together. Don't let's just be individual web searchers. We, we need to meet each other. A very early um, man on television, when I met him he was very ancient, he told me an interesting truth that if he trained somebody who was a criminal in the right techniques for television, he could appear a saint until you met him. He said the meeting, even just being in the same room, there are other instincts in human beings that would tell you immediately that's a criminal, whereas if you just see him on television, he would appear a saint. And he said, and vice versa, I can make a rather good person look perfectly appalling if I train him the wrong way. So we must get out and meet each other, set up institutions, use the institutions we've got, and get together. Mm. Now, you touched on education before. Do you think our education system places enough emphasis on helping young people to think critically about social and ethical issues? I'm not too comfortable with what I perceive as the narrowness of our current education curriculum. I understand why we're focusing so much on maths and IT and science. These are crucial topics, but we're 
bringing young people into a world that also has all of these other problems of social cohesion, of communication, of dialogue, of debating, of getting on with one another, and of foreign policy and human rights. We're not an island that is detached from the mainland. We are part of a whole human race. So yes, I'm very concerned. I'm a musician, deeply concerned that music, which is the most wonderful way of communicating and all of the things we've just been discussing, get together with some musicians, all together singing or playing or dancing or listening, you're a completely different person, you're in with others. And the same goes for art, the same goes for other art things such as creative writing. And I'm keenly worried at the lack of proper teaching of religion. I visited and been working in one of the so-called Trojan horse schools in Birmingham, wonderful children, wonderful young people, amazing teachers, and of course um, the young people who are mainly Muslim told me that going to the mosque was for their parents, they never went there. I said, well how do you learn about Islam then, because you're Muslims? They said, oh we get it all off the web. And you see, there we are again, uh, lack of learning, because their understanding of Islam was terrible, almost nothing. And we haven't taught religion. I think because we've mixed it up with worship. But the great faiths of the globe and the smaller faiths, something like 83% of the whole globe actively follows one of the faiths that is global or local. And it's a very small number of people, relatively speaking, therefore, I think it's normally about 12.5%, who declare themselves to be agnostics or atheists. And that's a completely respectable position. But if we're going to exclude teaching religion uh, then we are depriving young people of a mainstream uh, matter that affects 83% uh, of everyone around them for the rest of their lives, even if it excludes them. So I say the arts, religion, and also how to get on with each other, like debating. These are crucial issues, and a bit more sport would be wonderful for people. So yes, I don't know how you can fit all of that together, but we have amazing teachers, we have an amazing education system, and I just think we need to look at it a little bit more closely and, and fit these other things in somehow. Mm. And, and thinking about young people today, what do you think are the particular challenges that they face? I, if I were 18 now, I think my particular challenge would be the enormity of choice that is open to young people about half the population go to university now and therefore the choice of what to study would be very difficult indeed. Also thinking after that how can I manage to saddle myself with a vast debt? That's very scary. Does that mean I'm going to have to live at home with mum and dad for the rest of my life? How's that going to be managed? So I would worry about those things but I would also want to explore apprenticeships, I would also want to explore other ways of getting inside the world of work. And I'd also want to learn a lot more about work, as a matter of fact. And that's another thing, funnily enough, that schools and universities can do. Uh, they can introduce their pupils or students to the world of work by tying in with local companies, large and small, and getting the local companies to offer internships, places where they can go and work, where they can practice their skills, where they can learn how to work. I have interviewed many graduates of great excellence who seem to have no understanding of how to work at all. 
I'm sure they're very good at sitting at a corner and writing a thesis. At least I hope they were, but they don't know how to work. I want young people or old people who know about work and are committed to work because only by working and by socialising and by mixing with others can you hope to have any beneficial impact on the world around you. And that's, I think, the goal for all of us. And looking more broadly, uh, what do you think are the most serious challenges to social cohesion in Britain today, across all the age groups? Looking at all of the age groups and thinking about social cohesion in Britain, I think we're not doing too badly. Uh, we are the second most tolerant society in the globe, if one believes the surveys, which is probably right to do. And uh, we are the largest donor to humanitarian and aid crises ongoing, the very largest donor at the moment to the UN. Britain's not bad at all. And I think we should uh, celebrate our innate goodness, which I put down to probably all our forebears or something, and grasp the opportunities that lie ahead to make our society even better. There's so much good in Britain, it's, it's amazing, we're so lucky. We have a perfectly rational um, debating system, we have democracy, uh, we can change our leaders, we can change our representatives, uh, we can grumble to our heart's content without being stamped into prison for it, about anything and anybody almost. And we have tremendous opportunities now ahead for Britain as a place in which to work and from which to travel and uh, embrace all sorts of external investment. Britain's a very good place. What we've got to do is make it even better. Mm. Now, over the years um, at Cumberland Lodge, we've been grateful to have a close association with you and with your work. Um, what first brought you into contact with Cumberland Lodge? Cumberland Lodge is famous. And uh, I was so happy uh, when, about five years ago, we had the opportunity to bring the Iraq Britain Business Council, of which I'm now president, to Cumberland Lodge for a seminar. The Iraq Britain Business Council I set up in uh, 2009, and the objective of that is to force some all sorts of new attitudes um, into the way in which people look at the private sector. When you come out of a dictatorship, whether it's Chachasco or Saddam Hussein, or any other dictatorship, generally speaking, the state is seen to own everything, rather like massive communism. And therefore, people are very nervous about anything external at all. Yet, if you don't bring in the private sector, there is no possibility of any democracy or any freedom. The private sector is critical. It's the sister of democracy and the sister also of justice and the rule of law. So it was exciting to try to enhance the, the work of British companies already in Iraq and the region. And it was really, really exciting to have IBBC have its first uh, British seminar in Cumberland Lodge, mm. who made us so welcome, understood what we were trying to do, saw that it had an ethical base, and therefore brought us into Cumberland Lodge embrace. Thank you very much, Baroness Nicholson, for your time today. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. This recording was made in 2017, the 70th anniversary of Cumberland Lodge as an educational foundation. To find out more about the educational and charitable work of Cumberland Lodge, go to cumberlandlodge.ac.uk.